This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show for the fourth time combat journalist, author, and documentary maker, Sebastian Junger. Now, for those of you who didn't listen to the previous conversations, you can find them on episodes 7, 65, and 463. In this conversation, we discuss his upcoming book on death and mortality, We revisit his near-death experience that spawned that book, his time pre-9-11 in Afghanistan during the Civil War, his perspective on community, community service, how socioeconomic splits are the true division of the U.S., forging positive tribalism, and so much more. Now, before we get to this fourth incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Sebastian Junger. Enjoy. So Sebastian, I want to say thank you yet again. This is interview number four of the Behind the Shield podcast that you've come on. The very first one was episode seven. So literally I had zero episodes when you reached out. And here we are now. I think this will be in the eight, around 840 range. So um, seven years later. So I want to start firstly by saying thank you for coming on yet again. 
My pleasure. I'd love talking to you. So first things first, the last time we spoke, it was only a few months, I think, since you had your near-death experience. Obviously, we're going to talk about the book. Um, but how how have you been physically since that point? I mean, you, you went to a very unique place mentally, spiritually. Um, but I mean, it was so soon after, I'm sure it was still very raw. Has there been any kind of um, progression as far as the health, the identification of what happened or anything like that? Yeah, basically, I almost died of blood loss. I, 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 I lost, my doctor guessed about two thirds of my blood. Um, I needed 10 units of blood to, to survive. And, uh, um, and so I had, a, I had an aneur- undiagnosed aneurysm in my abdomen and my pancreatic artery. And it ruptured, and those are abdominal hemorrhage is a kill is a killer, right? And I and my odds were very low when I got to the hospital, but I managed to do it. I'm a healthy, athletic person. I had great doctors, um, and I I squeaked by. And I and but I had you know as an atheist, as a non mystic, uh, I'm uh, as an anti. In fact, as an anti mystic, I think I could almost say. I had the strangest experience, which is my dead father appeared above me. My dead father, who was a physicist of all things, and an and an atheist himself, appeared above me in this sort of strange form, in you know, inviting me to follow him, you know, into the darkness, which is what it was. It was a huge black hole underneath me that I was getting pulled into, and I was terrified. I had no idea I was dying, but I but I, I didn't want to go into the black pit. Who would? And my then my father appeared saying, it's okay, you don't have to fight it, you can come with me. And I was horrified. I I was like, come with you, you're dead, I'm not going with you. Like, what? we have nothing to do with each other. And I love my dad, but I was in that context, I, we have nothing to say to each other. And I said, you know, I was still conscious, I said to the doctor, you got to hurry, you're losing me right now, I'm going. And then when I woke up the next morning in the ICU, I, and all that came tumbling back to me, and I've been puzzling over it ever since. And um, so... Since then, I mean, the thing about a rupture, the good thing about a ruptured aneurysm is that aneurysms don't really reflect a health issue, right? It's a weak spot in the in the in the artery, and um, the problem I had was completely structural. And once they put a um, once they embolized the artery, I, it's as if it never happened, basically. And um, uh, so it's not like a heart attack or a stroke where. The thing that produced the hardest tag and a stroke, those conditions are still there and could produce another one. That's not true for me. And so um, most of my recovery after, you know, I had I had 10 units of blood in my abdomen or whatever. I bled into my own abdomen after I my body processed that. It's called a hematoma. Uh, after my body processed that, um, most of my recovery really was psychological and and um and, and you know, in some ways um maybe even harder than a physical recovery might have been i really struggled psychologically with the aftermath of that well i know that's going to lead to you know the inception of the book and and it's going to be coming out next year you in in previous conversations you're an avid runner you're an avid boxer what impact has that near-death experience had on the physicality and your ability to be physical because i know a lot of times an injury or near-death experience can infuse a lot of fear and and hesitance to go back into that movement space well i you know again if i had a heart condition i'd be a little hesitant to really you know gun it on the on the on the on the running track when i'm running my interval intervals but that's what kept me alive was the fact that i do that stuff so i i um you know i you know, after I recovered, I didn't, um, 
I have no issues around it. I mean, I if anything, I redoubled my efforts out there. So I guess, you know, I've kind of segued us right into the book now. So we'll do that first. And I've got a whole bunch of other things I want to ask you after then. So as you said, you you were somewhat um, you know, agnostic or, or atheist when it came to your beliefs. You see your father when you are literally trying to be dragged down the tunnel, the tunnel of death. Um, talk to me about the following months and years and and that um internal metamorphosis that you started having when it came to your own mortality and your spirituality well yeah i mean if you know i'm 61 had this happened when i was in you know at 30 I, my it might have affected me differently it might have affected me less but basically this happened at a time when most people are starting to acknowledge and face and deal with their mortality it's a very abstract thing until for me, it was a very abstract thing until I got into my fifties, you know, sixty, and and uh, so I've been thinking a lot about my mortality. I think mostly as a function of my age and being an older dad. I have a, I'm sixty one. I have a six year old and a three, almost four year old little girls. So it makes me very aware of the circle of life and when I'll, you know, be leaving them. And I hope it's after they've finish growing up and can take care of themselves. You know, I'm terrified of it being earlier than that. So, um, but, but in, you know, in terms of the sort of more spiritual intent of your question, I think, um, I, you know, I didn't see God, right? Like I didn't see Jesus or anything like that. I saw my father, right? And so people have asked me, does that make you question your atheism? Well, here's the way I think about it. Atheism means you don't believe in God. Right. You don't it doesn't a belief in God is not part of your daily existence. And that's still true. I do not believe in God. Right. I'm, I can imagine that such a thing would exist, but I don't myself practice a belief in such a thing. And it's entirely possible that there could be a what humans call an afterlife. Um that exists at some kind of quantum level, subatomic level that we don't understand, and there'd be no God at all in the universe, right? I mean, that's entirely possible. We're we're, we're biological beings. We're made, we're made up of mineral dust, right, and um, molecules. And it's possible that when we die, there is some continuation of our conscious existence, conceivably. But you don't need God for that, right? It's also possible that there is a God, who created a world that includes biological, you know, biological humans made up of minerals and water? That when they die, that's it. So there could be a god and no afterlife as well. You don't need what one doesn't necess- necessitate the other, right? So what I what I questioned ultimately when I saw my father was, do we, you know, later I was like, do we really understand? The nature of reality do we do we really understand what life is and what death is like are we really so sure that when you die physically when your body stops functioning uh reaches maximum entropy de- decomposes that there is absolutely nothing that continues of the individual are we so sure and I, and for me i'm like no now i'm not so sure right i'm open to the idea like i can't prove it i don't particularly want to prove it you know, but I, I don't know. I like I now what it what it what it made me do was adopt a position of of um of hu- of humility 
and of, and of not knowing, right? It certainly didn't produce a position of certainty, like, yep, when we die, that's it. Or, yeah, wow, there's a God. Like, it didn't produce any of those kind of places of certainty that I think a lot of people are sort of seeking. It's interesting when you talk about the quantum realm, you know, the more science evolves, the more we realize that there's, you know, that what they call the spirit molecule, you know, that, that when they go now past electrons and, and, and atoms, that there's vibrations. So, you know, it seems like in some spaces, the spiritual and the, the scientific is starting to kind of meet in the middle again. Yeah, and I, you know, when my book comes out, I'll get more into this because I, but the book is deals quite a lot with quantum physics, and you know, I really sort of explored that, and it's the weirdest rabbit hole you can imagine. And um, you know, I don't want to go into it too much now, but but yes, that's it's a fascinating component of this conversation about existence and reality, and you know, life and death and all that. Yeah, well, as you said, you can't speak too much at the moment. We're going to do another conversation, hopefully, when the book does come out, and then we'll dive yeah. in with both feet. Um, yeah. I want to kind of hit a couple of surface levels areas around that, though. I am 49. I'll be 50 in March. And uh, I look back at my own perception of mortality. I had a jarring moment when one of my school friends died in a in a car crash. He kind of lost control and drove into a house. And I was 18 and I went to the funeral and the coffin rolled by. And I mean, I got just hit in the face by the concept of mortality. But then some of the the self-talk was, well, you're 18. You know, you don't have to think about it for a long time. Now, you know, you talk about a bleed, for example, you might. You get hit by a car, you know, something, a war breaks out in your town, then yeah, it might be a lot sooner. But most of us can kind of stick our heads in the sand a little bit about the mortality. But then when you get to the the teeter point, and arguably, if you're fortunate, you get a hundred year lifespan, 50 is pretty solid. Like, okay, you're on, you're on the downslope now. So what is your perception of the midlife crisis? And do you think anything, do you think any element of that comes from that mortality and, and realizing that you cannot escape aging? Yeah, I'm guessing some of it does. I also think there's um, sort of more, more prosaically that you know, a lot of people marry in their 20s and have children, and then the ch- then suddenly their children are you know come of age, and the person's in their late 40s and 50, 50 whatever you're basically your age, and they're like, "What did I do with my life?" Like, boom! All, all of a sudden, I'm like, the novel I wanted to write, I, you know, I wanted to backpack across Asia, you know, et cetera, et cetera you know, like. You mean I'm 50 now? Like now I like, and I think that you know I know that time goes by in a kind of blur when you're a parent, and I don't know if you are or not, but but you are. You you have children, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, one's yeah, yeah. 22 is a stepson, and one's 16. So we're looking at oh. probably less than two years, and he may be on his way to military college. You know, whatever it sends him. Oh, so you're right on schedule, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm getting ready to break down in about 18 months. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think. I think people are very good at being in a kind of state of denial about mortality. And there's a wonderful book called The Worm at the Core about how this awareness of mortality is an amazing book. You know, basically, as we evolved from primates, we are primates, but as we evolved, we um, we developed a sense of our own individuality, which made us very, very intellectually capable. Um but that idea of an individuality, like my my dog, who's dead now, but my dog Daisy, some years ago, didn't have really a big, a great sense of 
her own individuality and therefore no sense of her own mortality, right? She was a dog and she lived from moment by moment. You know, your very young children do as well. And But as you develop the intellectual apparatus to understand your own individuality, by definition, you're also understanding that individual, individuality will end. And there, it's very hard to hold both ideas in your mind at the same time. And so we're very good at being in denial about uh, our, our, our life ending. And so I think what, I think at age 50, I certainly was in denial about it. I was in really good shape. Right. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 50 years old, but I had my body functioned and, you know, I couldn't tell the difference between 50 and 30 and 20. Right. It was all, you know, my mile time was a little slower, but essentially like I didn't, I wasn't having a changed experience with my physical, with my body in, in life. Right. Um, which allows for a lot of denial. Um, but what I think happens to a lot of people, this didn't happen to me because I had children at 55, but I think for a lot of people, a lot of things get put on hold in order to have children. And those things that are put on hold are sort of the, you know, the the um, the point of life when you're young, right? Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. I wanna, you know, like, and, and, and all, you all got sort of like put on hold. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of your life and you're like, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm not saying, of course, this about you, but a lot of you are like, oh, I'm not that, I'm not that into my spouse. Like we live in a suburb somewhere. I'm not that into my neighborhood. It all worked for a while to raise children, but now, boom, here I am. Like, there's this amazing talk, talking head song. Like, this is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful home. You know, what am I doing here? Like, you know, I think that's like, that's a midlife crisis right there. I mean, so I think there's a couple of things going on with that. And one of them is mortality. Well, I think, I was talking to someone the other day and and I was thinking about this principle that really by the time your children turn 18, you should be exhausted if you've done it right. I mean, you're pouring your heart and your soul into this potential adult that could either bring the world together or could destroy the world, depending on your parenting style and you know what you're infusing on them. Um, and so it is that sense of selflessness again, that sense of giving. If I think if you're a good parent, it's it's very, very selfless to raise a child. And having had and you and i have had this conversation before that that service especially when we transition from uniform and find another purpose another sense of service there's no greater service than pouring yourself into raising a child and then all of a sudden one day you know the car drives away with whatever university sticker on the back and now you're kind of empty nesting going what's next so i i can't help but feel the empty nest syndrome actually is quite a powerful parallel from the transition from military or first responder yeah. out. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I, so I, 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 I was an anthropology major in college. I, I sort of th continued to think, see things through that lens. Um, what I would say is that our society, our meaning sort of like modern Western society, um, is really an anomaly, right? For most of human history, uh, humans were social primates. We really evolved to live, live in groups and that parent, if, you know, and, and people were not necessarily quite sure whose child was whose, right? I mean, you know, I mean, even today with modern birth control and all that, apparently 10% of children are actually not from their father. I mean, of course, you know who your mother is because he came out of her. But there's no, you know, it's a little bit of an act of faith that like, oh, that's my kid. That's my dad. Right. And apparently something like 10 percent of children, it's actually not what they believe is actually not true. 
right? So, so just imagine in our in the, in the last hundred couple of hundred thousand years, uh, we lived in fairly small, very tight communities where people relied on each other for their immediate daily survival needs, and there was a lot of group parenting. Right, there was aunts and uncles and grandparents and people in the next lean to over and what have you. And in poorer countries, that's exactly, you know, all over Africa. I mean, there, you know, parenting is this sort of collective endeavor and the, um, you know, the poorer people are, the more they rely on each other. And at that level, at that economic level there, I mean, my, the first woman I was married to my first marriage, um, she grew up in, in communist Bulgaria. And there was a lot of collective parenting in communist Bulgaria, even though people lived in individual apartments, it was extremely poor. And, you know, moms and dads had jobs in factories and there, you know, whatever. There was a lot of collective responsibility by the community for the children. And so the the stress, you didn't have to completely pour yourself into your child because you weren't doing it by yourself. Everyone was raising everyone's children. Right. And um, the. um that sort of like I'm here for my children, which is what I'm the way I'm doing it as well, right? But but that's a very much a modern, a modern idea. And likewise, when you get out of the quote service, whatever that is, in a in a small scale pre industrial society or sort of small scale tribal organic society, you don't get out of service, right? I mean, it's all one thing, right? The warriors, the farmers, the 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 midwives, the elders, the this, the that. I mean, it's all one big thing. You don't get out of anything, right? So. And and so I think what what you're looking at is a very very modern phenomenon that um, we're not particularly well suited to, though we can do it because we're as a species we're very adaptable. It's a very modern phenomenon. It's very hard on us compared to the sort of histor- historical and alternatives. Um, and um, it it it's um, it it doesn't have good solutions. Right. You're experiencing something that I think most people in human history probably didn't experience is an empty nest syndrome. Like, what are you talking about? They're right over there. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They're 18. Yeah, he's on a horse. He's on a horse. He's about to go kill some Comanche. Like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> There's no empty nests. Like, so this is all very, very modern and a reflection of the highly individualistic nuclear family structure that our society is sort of built around. Now, obviously, you know, the the first book that you and I discussed was Tribe. Second one was Freedom. Um, when you look at the seemingly continuous uh, effort to divide many people in this country, um, we seem to get further and further away from that tribal element and tribal in a positive way, not a negative way. What is your lens, your perspective now of of that when you've written so much about that small community it takes a village concept that you've yeah. witnessed and researched so much in other other tribes and other countries well first of all it doesn't take very many people to ruin a system that depends on good faith and trust right and um so i i feel like there are a few politicians and i you know i'm not going to name names and get into political parties but I think there are a few politicians, a, rel- a relative handful, who have actually decided that partisan division in the country and even maybe outright civil war are to their political gain and that they are going to push for that. 
Right. So um, I think in a small scale tribal society, people that were endangering the unit cohesion of their own society that badly would be picked up and thrown off a cliff. Right. I mean, it's a matter it's a, they, they, the people like that are an existential threat to the society, right? Because they're dividing the society. And when you divide a society, it's vulnerable to attack. And so I, I think those people would be killed. And there, there was a wonderful anthropologist named Bohm, B-O-H-M, B-O-E-H-M, something like that. Um, uh, and he wrote, he's, he's written about this sort of evolutionary origins of morality, and what he found was that capital punishment at the tribal, small scale tribal level was extremely common. And his guess is, is that uh, people um, grouped together to kill basically predatory, self-serving, abusive leaders who were trying to coerce the entire group to act in their individual benefit. Um, and there's petroglyphs, there's, there's paintings on, on cave walls showing the killing of one individual by many, with a, bristling with arrows, you know, clearly killed by a volley of arrows. You know, the interesting thing about humans is, of course, we have language. So the biggest, the biggest male in the room actually cannot, as in other primate species, dominate all the other males because all those other males that are smaller than him can actually get together, have a conversation and say, you know what? Zog is being abusive. If we stand together, he doesn't have a chance. Right. And that's not really true. It's barely true in chimpanzees. There's a little bit of that collective behavior against the alpha male. Um, and so, so, you know, I think there's politicians who are exploiting these differences, augmenting them, um, amplifying them for their own political benefit. Shame on them, right? I'm against capital punishment, but <laughs> maybe I'll make an exception for this, you know, because <laughs> it really is a threat to the in entire country. I don't care what your political party is. But I'll also say, and then, sorry, it's a long answer, but it's a complicated question. I'll also say that as soon as there's an existential threat, no matter how big the tribe, 40, 40 million, 400 million, it doesn't matter no matter how big the tribe, those internal divisions collapse until the threat is over. And we're seeing this in Israel right now. Israel was an extremely divided society. It was basically, basically as I understand it, cleaved in half by a radical right-wing initiative to strip the Supreme Court of its uh, rightful powers in a democracy. Uh, its powers, which are meant to keep powerful people in line, like keep them from abusing their authority. And a, a right-wing coalition tried to um, change that. It divided the society. Boom, 1,300 people dead in a terrible tragedy in Israel during the attack by Hamas. And now they have a unified government, a unity government to deal with that threat. You know, likewise, after 9-11, I mean, George Bush either did or didn't win the election, but it would, you know, it would came down to some hanging chads and some few hundred votes in Florida decided by and the outcome was decided by a Republican judge. You know, it didn't for for Democrats, it didn't really feel that fair, right? But he was the president, and then we got attacked, and all of those divisions disappeared after 9-11. And for a while, we really were all one, all one thing, but for a few outliers. And so um 
it's unnatural to live in a society that's big. It's unnatural to allow people who are actively trying to divide you to survive. Um, and a big, but a big enough threat will reverse all that. And, you know, God forbid, I hope this doesn't happen to the United States. But if it did, if we had a, a, the kind of attack that Israel suffered, and certainly proportionally to our population, it would be tens of thousands of people. Um, uh, I, I think all of the divisive nonsense that we're watching right now would um, would disappear at least for a while. Now, with that being said, if there wasn't going to be an attack, and obviously that's best case scenario, what other principle excuse me principles can we pull from history to bring people back together again because this is it's heartbreaking to me and one of the guests i had on not too long ago made a great analogy imagine you're a medieval england and you're standing in the the castle looking at the peasants and you've got them arguing with each other he said well, where are they not looking at the castle oh, so it's course. it's such a, a blatant obvious thing you know and we wave flags and beat chests and say we're the greatest country in the world yet you know we're so divided, even to the point where my profession, we have the firefighters union, but there's the black union, Hispanic union, the female union. It's like, well, right. that's not the term union. Now you're pigeonholing <laughs> yourselves within the literally the uh, antithesis of the word. So, you know, w there have been great people in history that have pulled the nation back together again. What needs to happen in the U.S. to get the people of America to understand that we are the base of the pyramid and that person at the top is there only because we allow them to be? Well, you know, first of all, we, I, you know, I think we, we need to understand that the elites of both parties, um, the, the elites of society, regardless of party, have a lot more in common with each other than with the people of their own uh, demographic, their own party. Right. So Republicans and Democrats, they go to this. They, they, their kids go to the same colleges. They vacation in the same Caribbean islands. They invest in the same stocks. Like, give me a break. Right. Like they have very they have a lot in common with each other and very little in common with the sort of little people within their own voting block. Right. So, I mean, the first, you know, OK, I'll just like confess here. I was raised liberally, you know, politically as a political liberal. I, I remain that, but I remain enormously critical of liberal thought and the Democratic Party. And, you know, one of the complete moral failures and tactical blunders of the left is to refuse to talk about class difference. They talk about gender and they talk about all kinds of explosive things. They will not do a class based analysis of American society because the left wing are elites. Right. They wound up as elites. You know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, the left there was a lot of the left wing, which were like working class people in factories. Right. I mean, they were sort of the sort of sort of. Um, you know, work, you know, socialist workers unite kind of thing, right? And there was a very, very working class based political movement. It's completely sh shifted to the elites. Shame on them, right? And they will not, uh, you know, they, they they say, they talk about sort of white male privilege and those are all things worthy discussing, right? They, I mean, maleness and whiteness do come with, can come with certain privileges, but, they, you know, they're really not doing the analysis of like a white male coal miner actually doesn't have a, a huge amount of privilege. I'm sorry. And the left will not have that conversation. Right. And, you know, the right wing refuses to have other conversations. We don't need to get into it. But I so but how do you so how do you unite all this? I mean, first of all, divisions happen through lack of familiarity. And I think if there was. I mean, when I saw in the military where there's people. You know, the military sort of tends right wing, but not exclusively. There are plenty of Democrats in the 
combat unit I was with. And, you know, but because they were with each other in the, you know, literally in the trenches, those political differences didn't really mean much. Uh, yeah, Misha, he's a freaking liberal, but what is Misha, right? He's my, he's my friend, right? Like, or whatever, like, and, and uh, so, you know, I think, how do you give Americans the experience of being together, given how politicized the country is and how stratified economically? That's the other, you know, these horizontal divisions and vertical divisions. How do you get rid of that? Because that's how you get a sense of collective endeavor going. And, you know, I think one one really good way to do that, barring a 9-11 type emergency, <laughs> is uh, mandatory public service, mandatory national service. Um, not necessarily with a rifle, right? I mean, if you're, if you want to be in the military for your national service, great, go for it. We need people in, in uniform. But I think you should be able to serve your country as well with a shovel or with a notebook or you know, with a box of diapers at a daycare center for, you know, low-income people that need to work. And they what do they do with their kids? You know, whatever. I mean, it's all it's all honorable work. It's all necessary, dignified work if we choose to see it that way. And if it's mandatory, it really puts people of every creed, every color, every religion, every economic background, every political stripe, it puts them all, you know, it puts them all in, 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 in the room together, in the back of a truck together, whatever it may be. And that's enormously healthy. And I actually think the, that the political elites, not even the, the, the corporate elites, that the elites of this country actually don't want that. I think they actually would be against it because this is my little paranoid, you know, my moment of paranoia here. But I actually think that I think they do not want the, the commoners, as it were, having the chance to compare notes and talk about what's best for the, quote, lower third of the of the country. One of the things that I kind of had an aha moment on not too long ago was um, we think about the mental health crisis. And you and I have talked, obviously, about the impact of, you know, everything from childhood trauma to what we see in uniform, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're pulling your hair out, un, you know, trying to understand why Richard Sackler can sleep at night when, you know, his pills are killing tens of thousands of people or cigarette companies or politicians, I kind of realized, well, because we're not addressing mental health there as well. So my philosophy is that we've got a lot of almost sociopathic behavior in some of these elites, quote unquote, probably because of this reoccurring, you know, trauma that's unaddressed, even if those people happen to be extremely wealthy. Yeah. And they're all, I'm sure, I mean, I'm guessing they're saying to those, look, I, you know, as long as I'm not breaking the law, I mean, I, the laws are there for a reason. I mean, this is what Trump said about his taxes, right? Like, yeah, okay. Dodgy, unethical, you know, shady, whatever, but was it illegal? No, I, you know, I exploited loopholes in the law. Right. So I, I'm guessing that that, I mean, I, I would, you know, my first book was The Perfect Storm. And at the time there was a big crisis. There still is in, in the fishing stocks. And there were, uh, you know, there were laws to sort of like protect the fishing stocks. I remember some sort of like liberally minded people were like, don't those, say to me, like, don't those fishermen know that they're raping the ocean? And I'm like, look, they're earning a living, right? And they're earning a living and following the law. And if you don't want the oceans to be raped, change the law. But don't ask fishermen to voluntarily fish less, even though the law allows them to, because they think they're raping the oceans, right? I Like, change the law, right? And I, and I, I get the same, I would get the same conversation with liberals 
I sound like I'm sorry. I sound like a conservative. I really do vote democratically every <laughs> every damn election, right? But you know, bear with me. Like I would have the same conversations from liberals about soldiers. Like, don't they realize that they're like subjugating? You know, we're an empire subjugating the world. Blah blah blah. I'm like, no, they're 19. It's not their job to decide what wars to fight. Are you kidding? It's Congress's job, and it's the the you know it's the job of the adults to decide what to do and how to allocate money to do it. The fact that a 19-year-old is following orders doesn't make him the criminal, right? Like, don't you know how this works? Like, you don't want to give the soldiers, you don't want to give 19-year-old soldiers the vote on whether to fight a war or not. They're 19. Like, come on, give me a break. And so anyway, there's that sort of fallacy of the people, again, at the quote, quote, at the bottom, being responsible for the outcomes that a fairly elite affluent society is collectively deciding on and basically because it benefits them. Well, speaking of military, um, since we spoke, we had the Afghan withdrawal, which I want to get your thoughts on. But before we do, I was doing some research, um, you know, again for this interview, and I didn't realize that you were in Afghanistan before 9-11 when the civil war was going on. I was basically unaware of the civil war till I had an Afghani on the show, an Afghan on the show, um, Rasul Rasek, make sure I get that right. Um, and he's still advocating for the people now because what's going on in Afghanistan after that avoid is, is horrendous. But I'm intrigued what your perspective was in that country prior to our conflict and then kind of let's walk through to the other side and, and what you're observing having been there before we ever even entered yeah so my first trip there was 1996 and it was the summer that the taliban took over and i actually was staying in the same hotel i was in non-taliban territory they'd had they had about a third of the country and i was in the part of the country nominally controlled by the government and um the government which was a corrupt piece of shit right i mean like you know like they got they'd managed to get the soviets out but um and so the taliban delegation was staying at the same hotel in jalalabad that i was staying at and there were these very severe white robed men with white beards who would sort of glared at me from the other table and while we all ate the same thing because it was all they had every meal including breakfast was chicken and rice so we just sat there eating our chicken and rice glaring at each other and i was young and i had pretty short hair i'm sure they thought i was u.s intelligence or something you know whatever but um and then i you know i got shot at by taliban gunners on the outskirts of kabul when i got too close to a front line because they were right around kabul and um and i remember the guy after we got the the, the young pashtun translator that i have we got shot at by, you know, a Taliban machine gunner. We sort of got behind cover and he was like, well, that we should, we should pull back. And, you know, it's totally destroyed, blown up city. And he said, you know, we hate those people, the Taliban. We hate them. But we're going to uh, we're going to let them in because the civil war will end. And they promise to clean up corruption. Corruption is the great evil of Afghan society. And whatever the Taliban's problems are, um, they're harsh. They're, you know, they're. they're dogmatic, et cetera, et cetera. They stone adulterers, you know, in the stadium, blah, blah, blah. But they will stop the corruption that's ruining Afghan society. So we're going to let them in. That's how we phrased it, right? You know, and indeed the Taliban came in and I loathe the Taliban, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good human rights believer, right? And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a human rights travesty, right? But they did stop corruption, right? They actually did do that. Not completely, but they, 
they really reformed Afghan society in the, in, in, in that sense. And so when they, and then, you know, a couple of years later, I was with Ahmed Shah Massoud in the North as he was fighting the Taliban and Al Qaeda in Barakshan and um, the very intense experiences there. And, and then 9-11, they, then right before 9-11, Massoud was assassinated and um, 9-11 by Al Qaeda, 9-11, happened i rushed back to afghanistan and i was with the northern alliance when they took kabul you know with basically the u.s air force above them in the skies and a few special forces on the ground and um when we, we walked into kabul and when people found out that i was american they would come up to me and hug me in the streets like thank you basically thank you for what your country did for us we got you got rid of those bastards you got rid of the taliban right and then i watched american policy just completely fail, right? And the one thing that they did not address was corruption. And um, so the, I mean, the Bush administration, uh, Obama, Trump, Biden, none of them, none of them dealt with the, the central driver uh, to the problems in Afghanistan, which which is corruption. And we, you know, we we uh, supercharged corruption. We 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 gave them hundreds of billions of dollars or whatever the price tag was. With no monitoring, right? Here, here's $10 million to build a dam. What do you do? Like a year later, in any country, in any society, if there's no dam, a year later, you're like, where's the money? Like what? Like well, there, there were no repercussions. And I and I spoke with John Kerry about that at one point. I was like, listen, you're gonna lose this. You know, you're gonna this is not gonna work if you don't follow up the money you give them with some repercussions, with some, you know, cut them off. And he's like, Oh, we can't do that. I think you can do that. If you if you cut them off and threaten to leave, they will reform because they know that if the Taliban come in, they're all dead. They're all hanging from street posts, right? Like Najibullah did um, when the Taliban came in in '96. So, um, all those administrations failed in uh, uh, you know a war that had enormous Afghan backing. I mean, there was an enormous gratitude by the Afghans for us for what we were doing to rid the country of that blight. And basically, we allowed the conditions that gave rise to the Taliban in the first place, we allowed those conditions to reform under our watch. And at the very end, when the Afghan government pulled out, President Ghani left on a helicopter with $40 million in some canvas bags. Like, give me a break. He was our guy. We let that happen. Well, that mirrors what Rasul was saying. I mean, multiple things that you said. Ironically, he was one of the Northern Alliance fighters with Massoud. So you may have literally have met him before, quite possibly. Right. Oh, wow. But um, but he was saying that he was he was, you know, giving um you know, gratitude to obviously the Americans in uniform that actually risked their lives to to try and help his country. But also he was saying, look, so much of the aid just wasn't getting to the people that it needed. And and with the tribal element and this kind of vying for power amongst all these different groups, this is what I think we, the average, you know, American, British, Australian citizen to understand is it's not a, a nation, you know, together. It's all these tribes that are all kind of vying for for the power void. So, you know, it's it's so much more complicated. And it sounds like even um, when our troops first went in, they weren't really given that information. So, you know, they had to then play the cup game with all these different groups. Yeah. And, and um, you know, of course, George Bush w- was already eyeing Iraq, right? I mean, he, 
you know, we, we the, the Taliban militarily were a paper tiger and they they collapsed very, very quickly uh, um, in the fall of 2001. And then um, we left 15,000 troops in Iraq, in Afghanistan and moved on to Iraq. I mean, 15,000 troops, there's 40,000 cops in New York City. Are you kidding? 15,000? The Afghans knew that wasn't going to work, right? Like, and... Uh, and still, they trusted us, even though we we did, we we left a, a, a troop level there that was guaranteed to fail. They still trusted us. They still said, "Okay, we'll try," knowing that if it failed, it was their heads on the block, right? But they still they still tried, and um, it was just such incredible American arrogance. And you know, Iraq was such a just a tragic diversion from the war that we could have won in Afghanistan, the country where where 9-11 actually did originate, right? And the 3,000, roughly 3,000 American, Americans and firemen and policemen that died in the towers and on those planes, like they died because of things that were happening in Afghanistan, uh, not in Iraq. And we, we had a chance to make that work, right? And now it's Taliban again, like, give me a break. I mean, how failed can US policy possibly be? So what has been your observation then of the withdrawal? I mean, you talk about a lot of the the areas that you discuss in Tribe. I mean, so many people that I've spoken to are proud of their service, but you cannot you know, pretend that there's not a huge impact of what do we do that for when men and women died on Afghanistan soil, you know, and people came home missing limbs, came home with PTSD. And then, you know, there's this complete abandonment, not only through their eyes, now they're back in America, but the incredible men and women that they served alongside when they were in Afghanistan. Yeah. I I don't know what to tell people. I mean, I, I like um, when they asked me that, I, uh, um, it was a complete failure and an unnecessary failure. You know, the sort of like, the, the sort of truism, oh, like, you know, Afghanistan is where empires go to die. You know, it's just, it's not true. Like, I mean, the, um, the, we could have made this work, right? It failed because we failed, not because Afghanistan is an unsolvable political and military problem, right? We failed. We were stupid. We, we were brave and stupid. And um, that's, I say that as a Democrat, of all both Republican and Demo Democratic administrations, both of them were equally stupid, and it's um, an insult to our military and to the good people of Afghanistan that we we would act the way we did and be as stupid as we were. And so I I don't know what to say now. Like I, like oh, what was all that for? I I don't have a good answer. I mean, I'm, I'm I got nothing right. Like I, I don't want to say it was worth nothing because that's just too painful. So I, um, but I, I don't know, I don't know what to say. And I, you know, Biden, yeah, I was on his watch, but he was fatally compromised by Trump who had an agreement with them. The, the pullout was done disastrously badly, right? I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding? This is the US military, <laughs> like doing it this way, you know? But Biden was fatally compromised by Trump who was fatally compromised by Obama who was fatally compromised by Bush like give me a break they're all they were all idiots 
Yeah, well, it goes back to like you said. I mean, you know, this this version of leadership that we have, you know, I've I've said that the system is broken. You know, I mean, it's not a democracy; it's a demistocracy. You've got to be wealthy, and you've got to be devoid of ethics to actually survive in that game. So until we change that system of of election, where you can actually vie for that position, because we all know great leaders, we all do. But none of them, they always say, oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to get to that point. Well, it's not because of the lack of leadership. It's because their attributes that are valuable basically deny them from success in that particular game. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, um, you know, I mean, I think corporate money in politics is uh, the Citizens United decision was disastrous for democracy. You know, I think gerrymandering which both sides do, but I think the Republicans of recent, in recent years have really weaponized it, is a catastrophe for democracy. And now it's a catastrophe for the Republicans, right? They're completely paralyzed in the House because gerrymandered districts allowed for really, really non-democratic extremists to get themselves elected. And now they're dealing with, basically, they're dealing with their own their own people acting in bad faith within the Republican caucus, right? So I... Um, uh, there, there's ways to reform this, but there's a lot of uh, corporate interest in, um, invested in not reforming it. And um, and politicians, you know, I mean, with some except with some exceptions, and I know a few, but um, there, you know, there's a forgive me, there's a joke about politicians told by politicians. And it's something like, don't tell my mother I'm a politician. She thinks I'm just a, po- a prostitute. Right. Like this <laughs> There's, there's a little bit of that going on. I'm sorry, like on both in both parties. Well, you obviously come from the world of journalism. I mean, you've not only you know written four papers, you've made documentaries, you've written books. Um, I had a guest on Larry Doyle, and Larry was the very first person who got to interview Nelson Mandela after he came out of Robin Island. So back from the time where journalism was journalism. And I was asking him about, you know, how do we get here? How do we get to news, air quotes, being a screen divided in four and four, for lack of a better word, assholes arguing with each other and then telling us that's the news. So from a media perspective, again, king for a day, what do we need to do to get back to educating the population of the facts that are going on in our country and overseas rather than using it as a political tool like CNN and Fox do? I mean, I think the long-term solution, I mean, is a generational problem. And I think we have to think the way the Chinese supposedly do, what's going to, what will, what will work best a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. Right. And if we really want to, if we pretend, if we like to think of ourselves as, um, as a nation that will continue on into the indefinite future, we have to think about the indefinite future and our outcomes. Right. Or we're not, a nation of that sort, right? So um, I think the first thing we have to do is implement national service, uh, mandatory national service. Um, I think uh, responsible legislation that keeps social media out of the hands of children. By children, I mean up to age 18. Uh, our, our, our children are not allowed any Touchscreen devices, no tablets, no iPhones, nothing. We don't even have a television, right? And once in a while, they can watch some child programming on our laptops, but they're completely off. It's an addictive 
it's an addictive thing and it's extremely damaging, particularly to, I happen to have two young girls, particularly to girls, but it's, it's really destroying people and they're deeply, they, they are deeply addicted and psychologically dependent on social media. And it's also d- destroying people's attention spans, their capacity for critical thought. I mean, all the things that a democracy needs wow, how strange, they're all being destroyed right now. Like, <laughs> you kind of have to wonder, like, and the people that are benefiting it are private, these are private citizens that own and run um, these enormous corporations that have an amount, you know, the, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world that have an amount of money that rivals most nations in the world. Are you kidding? This is like, so we're sacrificing our youth, our psychological well-being, for their profits, right? The profits of those people, right? It's disgusting. And so I would say mandatory national service, responsible legislation that protects children from the harmful effects of um, social media and smartphones. Um, I think they have to revert, they, they have to go after the, the, the grotesquely incestuous relationship between corporate money and politicians. Uh, they have to tackle gerrymandering in a real way so that extremists can't get elected in these safe districts um, and then pollute the process, the functioning of Congress. I think you have to do all of those things. And ultimately, you have to invest in the education system. And I mean, one of the reasons people accept this nonsense is that because they're poorly educated. They're, 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 their diets are bad. Their intellectual diets are bad. They're physically unhealthy. They're psychologically, intellectually unhealthy. All that can be reversed in schools, and, and and those bad those bad practices start in schools. And look, I live in a low income part of New York City. I see it all the time, right? And you know, the lower income the family, the more the kids likely to be on on a on a on a, a smartphone or a tablet, even at age two, right? This is not something the elites are doing. And uh, so, if you do all of those things, you know, when my when my children are old lady old women. Right. When, they, when they're in their 70s and 80s. America might be starting to write, you know, like come back up to an equilibrium. Now, what about on the physical side? To me, another area that's being attacked is health in our children. You know, we're serving absolute shit in the schools. We're cutting P.E. How do we pull ourselves out of not only the inactivity through devices, but also just nutrition and, and movement that was so kind of organic 50, 100 years ago? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it comes down to how schools are run, and that, that's a bit of a mystery, and teachers' unions and all that. But I, I mean, I mean, the idea, I mean, particularly with boys, I mean, the the, the sexes are different, and, and those differences um, start very small. Uh, they're not even a, a, for newborns. They're not non-existent. I mean, those differences are there even in newborns, and they, the differences get bigger and bigger between boys and most boys and most girls. And then when they hit puberty, the differences are really profound. And and um, boys, um, I mean, I, I'm sorry to be sort of like generalized in these sort of like. Uh, untutored ways, but boys have a really hard time sitting still in class. Like, I'm sorry. Like they just, they concentrate at eight, 10, 12, 14, they concentrate way less well than girls do. And the idea of depriving those boys of the release of even 30 minutes of recess where they can tear around 
the uh, like the 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 playground like is insane it's completely insane like no society has ever run like that like we are reinventing something and clearly is not working and the 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 rates of mental illness the and, and the rates of med, of medication right in our population are astronomical what right? like a third of boys are on adhd medication or something i mean i, I don't know exactly what the number is it's an, an incredibly high number i mean are you kidding like you're giving children pills to modify behavior um at that level and not changing the circumstances that's producing the problematic behavior well, like that's insane and so I, I like how do you you ask me how to change that i have no idea but the first step in change is I, is understanding the problem and that's i feel like we're we're not even at that stage yet i've had a lot of people from around the world one of them was from finland passy solberg and he's an educator from Finland now lives in Australia, but he travels the world talking about the Finnish system. And if you look at academically, performance-wise, the Finns do usually number one. You know, it might shift one, two, three, but they're pretty much at the top the whole time. And the, their whole model is looking at the child holistically. And they have a lot of recess and 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 physical, you know, education. They have shorter school days. So we seem to be stuck in this, you know, um, sleep when I'm dead mentality, even with our kids. But actually, less is more as we become more and more educated seems to be the solution. And even in the corporate space, there's a lot of people now that have tried four day work weeks, same, same, you know, nine hour day, realizing they're as if not more productive because you're not having to kind of fill that day with work. So this is what's so sad is, you know, we beat our chest and we say we're the greatest in the world. And there's things that we do in this country that the world, you know, wants to emulate. But there seems to be an absence of humility to go, Finland, tell me again how you're doing this because we seem to be failing. Or Norway, tell me about your prison system. The UK, tell me about this healthcare that everyone gets healthcare. That's that's a, you know, strange concept to us. And actually learning so that so that you have that kind of the the, the rising tide lifts all ships mentality but it seems like to me there's so much arrogance again with some people not not all of america um that gets in the way of us simply asking another nation that's doing something well you know how do we do that how do we implement that yeah because i mean the solutions are there you don't have to reinvent the wheel yeah i think there's a sort of silly like on the left wing there's this silly idea that if you don't hate america you're not a, you're not a proper human right you're you're immoral and in the right wing there's this silly idea that if you criticize america you're not a patriot it's just complete garbage thinking on both sides you know and um so you know i you know with with finland I, it's interesting like i wonder what they're their their rates of um what their mental health numbers look like you know i'm guessing that they actually as a people they consume proportionally less antidepressant medication you know adhd medication um i'm guessing they're on probably uh fewer people are on weight proportionally fewer people are on weight loss drugs diabetes medication you know blood pressure medication do <laughs> you i mean you go down the list like and and I'm guessing that on all I, I don't know, but I'm guessing that on all those by all those metrics, they are a quote healthier society than we are. And um so not only not only is there like intellectual and physical benefits, uh, there's psychological ones as well to living a, a healthy life. And again, we're 
We're social primates. We are primates. We are animals. We evolved over the last hundreds of thousands of years. Our last common ancestor with chimpanzees was 6 million years ago. It's not that long ago. Like we have physical needs. We have a physical reality. Our, our psychology is, is adapted to survive in a hostile environment. Our intellect is designed to figure out problems that allow us to survive day to day in a complicated, threatening environment. Like when those things are not engaged in our daily existence, um, uh, in fact, when they are denied, um, you know, sort of do that, do that at your peril. And, and you clearly, if you look at American society, um, physically, psychologically, in terms of mental health, uh, happiness levels, um, in income distribution. Um, it's a very, very sick society uh, with, with many, many amazing victories behind it. Um, but it, we, there's a lot that ails us. I'm kind of incurably optimistic. And when I look at books, documentaries, even podcasts now, I, I'm hoping there's going to be a paradigm shift. I feel like the curtain has kind of been pulled back to a lot of people. Not everyone. There's there's extremists on whatever side we want to create, whatever trench you feel like you're in. But the normal people in the middle, um, I think they're having an awakening now. Now, through your eyes as a filmmaker, as an author, do you think that we're on the the crest of maybe another renaissance when it comes to the empowerment of the individual to actually learn rather than be told what to think? I I mean, I don't know. I think social media, um, AI and social media are real threats to our intellectual autonomy. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't have a smartphone. I have a flip phone. I don't, you know, I know that I'm as addictive as anybody else. And I'll get psyched, stuck right into that damn thing. Right. So I just, uh, you know, and I, you know, likewise, I don't walk around with a pack of cigarettes because I'll smoke them, right? And I smoke a cigarette once in a while, right? It's nice with a friend or whatever. But I knew if I had a pack in my pocket, I would just smoke it and I would feel bad, right? So, and I, so I don't walk around with things that I know I have an addictive response to, right? And, um, and so I, I don't, I don't think society is going to go in any kind of good direction while we are collectively addicted to something, anything, including social media, and um smartphones and all and all that that whole sort of like constellation of sort of digital candy absolutely well i want to get to your book and then go to some closing questions so i know that the title shifted um from what you originally were going to call it to what it is now so what is the book called what can people you know generally be looking forward to within those covers and then what is the release date yeah so my book is about almost dying a few years ago and um uh, it's called In My Time of Dying, and the subtitle is How I Came Face-to-Face -face with the Idea of an Afterlife. And it comes out uh, on May 21st, next May 21st, and I'll be doing a book tour and all that. Hopefully, people will hear about it and be able to get it very easily. Fantastic. Well, I want to throw the same closing questions at you I did last time. Um, so obviously, I think it was two years ago now since we last spoke. So is there a book in the last couple of years that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah. So there's an amazing book by a, an author named Sarah Kenzior called They Knew. And it's about the, um, you know, essentially the conspiracy of powerful elites against both liberal and conservative 
American citizens. I mean, basically, she's dividing society not between left and right, but between top and bottom. And she makes a very, very good case. And she was she is equally critical of the left wing and the right wing. Right. So she sounds like, a you know, of course, she sounds like a you know raging lefty, but she's really not. She's extremely critical of the left and thinks that the left wing is is incredibly corrupt. I mean, the the the, the Democrat the Democrats in in government are incredibly corrupt, like on in financial terms, along with the Republicans, right? So, uh, Sarah Kenzior, they knew is a phenomenal book. It's really readable. It's a little bit of Joan Didion to it. Like it's a phenomenal book. And um, I also am a longtime fan of Cormac McCarthy, and you know he he um, an amazing novelist who died some months ago, and. Um, his last book, and I'm sure he know knew it was his last book was the was the Passenger, um, and it came it came out with a, com- a slim companion volume as well. And I recommend that you read them, read them both. And um, it's a it's a confusing and extremely profound book. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. What about documentaries and or films? <laughs> you know, I have two young children, and. Um, I'm not sure I've seen any <laughs> since I talked to you. <laughs> I, I, I we, my wife and I managed to watch um, a um, a wonderful film called Transit. It's a German film that takes place in France during the during a German occupation of France, and it's both 1940s and current day. It's an ingenious blend of the eras, and um, it's quite a wonderful film. Uh, but anyway, I, I mean, I'm recommending that because I think it's the only film I've seen in two years. <laughs> What, well, what do you trust your children with when it comes to entertainment? Do you have a sort of filter as, as far as the you know the kids shows that are out there? Well, we um, oh, I should also let me just also say that there was there was another TV series. Um, God, what was it called? It'll come back to me. Remind me to tell you what it is because it's an amazing TV series about it. Uh, Escape from Donnemara. Uh It's about those two guys. Uh, 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 Matt and Sweat, who escaped like almost ten years ago from Donnemara, and they did an amazing. Ama- uh, uh, ben Stiller was the director. He did an amazing, amazing TV series called Escape from Donnemara. Um, f- absolutely phenomenal, like the best acting I've seen in a long time. So anyway, um, how do I keep my children from? I mean, we live in an extremely small apartment. Um, it's five hundred and fifty square feet. I think it's like we're living on a boat, and we co-sleep. Everything we do, it's like we're camping or something. Like everything we do is within earshot and sight of each other. And so we don't need parental controls. You know, they're they're allowed to watch a little bit of child programming on the laptop, uh, on the couch after dinner, right? Like things like Octonauts and stuff like that. Very sweet child programs, right? Any parent would know these things. But we're right there in the room. Like we don't we don't need parental controls on the laptop because we're the parental control. There we are. And um and we're not on our devices, really. We're sort of engaged. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know what criteria do we use. I, um, nothing ugly, nothing disparaging of other people, nothing violent, um, uh, nothing that undermines human dignity. I mean, I, you know, it all sounds kind of lofty, but you can, you know it when you see it. Absolutely. Well, just when we're talking about how you're living, I know if her memory serves me right, you used to be out somewhat in the woods and now you're back in the city in a small apartment. 
was there a kind of minimalist element to that move or you know what's the what's the the reason from going from one uh address to the the current one oh well we 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 have a property in the woods in massachusetts it's an it's an old old house and um quite deep in the woods the end of a end of a dead end dirt road part of it's an organic farm that some friends of ours some young couples live on and 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 work it's their property to 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 raise um crops on and um and so we we went there during COVID, and um it uh and we came back after COVID ended i mean the apartment we live in my wife has lived here for 20 years it's in a um mixed income mixed race mixed everything neighborhood in the lower east side and uh my girls are in public school and we're very very much part of the neighborhood and it's a span predominantly spanish-speaking not predominantly but substantially spanish-speaking neighborhood and building and um and you know the you know these are the old tenement buildings from 100 years ago and when you know when when immigrant families were living in these apartments you know eight 10 12 people stuffed in an apartment this size there's just four of us so we're good perfect all right well then the next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Oh God. Um, I mean, if you want, if you really want to get upset about uh, the American polity, I, you know, I would have Sarah Kenzior on. I'm sure she's pretty easy to reach. Um, and um, uh, I, but in terms of, let me think. Um, you know, I have a slow moving brain, and I may come back to you. I may come back to you with an email of some great people that I've thought of and they're out there, but right now I'm sort of drawing a blank, but, but uh, my old, old friend, Sarah Shays, C-H-A-Y-E-S has also written about the corruption of American politics. And I grew up with Sarah. She, she and I met when we were three, four, maybe we're like brother and sister. And she lived in Afghanistan for a long time as a private citizen. She wrote in, she was an NPR reporter and then stopped doing that and started doing some interesting work in Afghanistan, but she rode in on a motorcycle right after 9-11 into, into Kandahar and the Taliban were still there. And she rented a house and bought a pickup truck and, um, and, and, and learned Pashtun and just made herself part of Afghan society. And uh, she eventually had to leave because of threats to her life from the Taliban, but she was there for about a decade. And she wrote about corruption in Afghan society, how it was aided and abetted by the US military and American foreign policy and and then turned her eye on corruption in american politics and she and sarah kenzior collectively the two of them are devastating and amazing amazing minds and you know i would have both of them on if you really want to get your panties into twists i would i would have both of them on well i mean it goes back to education though i think this is the problem is is people label issues that need to be discussed politics so they can discourage discussion you know like the obesity epidemic and the mental health crisis and some of these things and it's like it's not politics covid it wasn't politics to address things that were killing people whether it was the virus itself or whether it was the fact that we have such a sick you know i mean like health-wise sick society that that needs to be addressed as well so i think that you know anything that educates the average person like myself or you on some of the things that are going on behind closed doors that are affecting our children's future, it's, it's an important conversation to have. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say just to circle back and 
I know we're winding this up, but to answer a previous question of yours, like how do we fix all this? The politics of division are certainly not not working particularly well, right? Like, um, I mean, I was not a big fan of Hillary Clinton. I thought she was a little bit of a divider herself. And, you know, likewise, Trump and, um, you know, Trump, I mean, Trump and the the dev- sort of divisive GOP has have essentially lost three elections in a row. Jim Jordan has just his effort has just collapsed. Sidney Powell just pled guilty. You know that that you know that's not success. That's failure. And you know I, I'm I'm hoping that eventually that the, the sort of radical I mean there's there's radical left wing there's there's radical lefties as well. They're just not running the Democratic Party. The radical right wing is run is running the Republican Party. And I'm just hoping with enough failure behind them, the, the Republican Party, God bless it, will come to its senses and put those radical people uh, uh, on the periphery where they deserve to be. And, um, you know, as, and I think it is headed that way um, just because that strategy, they keep doubling down on that strategy and it keeps failing in more and more spectacular ways. And now they've turned on each other. So, you know, I think there is a, a, a sort of balancing a balancing out happening right now that will have a good outcome. Absolutely. Again, I like I said, I I think it's important to be an optimist, otherwise you just become a cynic, you know. So I'm I'm hanging on to that glimmer of hope and trying to have great conversations with people like you and and educate us all on on you know things that we can do, creating that autonomy again. One more question before we make sure everyone knows where to to find you and your site. What do you do to decompress these days? Um. Right now, my children are screaming in the other rooms. So I was like, "Decompress!" Wow, that's a cool <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, I, I love the wilderness and the woods, and we, I, we, you know, the family goes. We, as a family, we go hiking and camping a lot. And um, I, I play accordion, and um, so I love music and uh, all styles: Irish, Balkan, Eastern Europe, um, and. Uh, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I was an athlete from when I was very young. I was a pretty good miler in in high school and college. I ran four twelve, I ran a two twenty one marathon. I've, you know, I've loved running. Uh, I started boxing about ten years ago, and um, uh, you know, I'm and I'm decent. You know, whatever. I mean, I'm not. You know, I'm it's very light sparring. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get hurt. You know, I don't want to get hurt. But it's an amazing sort of art form, discipline. Like it's extraordinary. Boxing is an extraordinary thing. And so uh, I don't know if you could call boxing decompressing, but <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it could be. I, I think it is. I used to do a lot of uh, Muay Thai when I was in California. And, you know, on the way there, someone would cut me up and I'd be all angry. And then on the way back, I'd be like, whatever. <laughs> I've yeah. just been getting hit for an hour and a half. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. So for people listening, then where are the best places to find you online or social media? Certainly, so they can hear more about when the book is coming out. Well, I, uh, the book comes out May twenty first. I don't post anything on social media because my loathing for social media is incredibly profound. When a book comes out, my publisher will take a <laughs> will post things. Uh, that's not happening now, but as the day comes, I, I assume they will. I have a website www.sebastianyounger.com that .com that's j u n g e r sebastianyounger.com and um uh I, I, maybe they'll force me to post things when my, after my book is out maybe my publisher will make me post things after my book comes out but hopefully not 
and they'll do it for me. So you may see me on social media, but otherwise, hopefully there'll be reviews and such. Well, I want to thank you again. I mean, I know we've gone all over the place today, and this is the beautiful thing. I mean, this is conversation number four. You've got so many great books that are revered by so many people that listen to this, certainly Tribe especially. That's, that still remains on the pedestal. But I'm excited to hear about the next one. I think especially being at this point in my life and having been in a career where you know lots of people died in front of me, um, the mortality, your own kind of death experience. I'm excited to read about that. So I want to thank you so, so much for yet again coming on the Behind the Shield podcast and being so generous with your time. I really enjoy it. You know, make sure you track me down in the spring and we'll, we'll do it again.